Hello and welcome to episode 73, episode 73 of the Political Mike podcast. Uh, I am so honored and, and privileged to have with me uh, Professor Stephen Levitsky, uh, who's the director of the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University. As the David Rockefeller Professor of Latin American Studies and Professor of Government, his research focuses on democratization, authoritarianism, political parties, and weak and informal institutions. He is a co-author, along with Daniel Ziblatt, of How Democracies Die, a New York Times bestseller published in 2018. Um, and how this book, How Democracies Die, has been published in 25 different languages. He is currently writing a book um, with uh, Luke and Wei on the dur durability of revolutionary uh, regimes. Professor Levitsky received his uh, PhD um, from University of California, Berkeley. Uh, professor, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to have you on, especially at a time like now, um, because a June 2022 uh, Yahoo News and YouGov poll showed that most Democrats, 55%, and Republicans, 53%, now believe it is likely that America will cease to be a democracy in the future. Uh, this is a stunning expression of bipartisan despair about the direction of the country. And when you look at the polls, it looks like half of Americans, 49%, expressed the same sentiment when, when independents and those who do not declare any political affiliation are factored in. Um, this same survey showed that out of 1,541 U.S. adults uh, between uh, the period from June 10th to June 13th of this year, um, fewer than one in four uh, or 24% watched the uh, January 6th uh, committee hearings um, and only slightly more, 27% say they caught news coverage later. Nearly half, 49% say they did not follow the hearings at all. Uh, so while the data indicates that many Americans seem to be alarmed and, and losing faith about the fate of democracy, uh, it seems like relatively few, uh, few, a large portion are still reckoning with the real life attempt to undermine it. Um, and then when you look at the world, you look at Brexit, you look at the fact that reports this week showed that uh, Russian secret, Russia secretly invested $300 million to influence foreign elections, which comes at surprise to hardly anyone. Um, what, I mean, what's going on? Is democracy going through some indigestion in your view? Indigestion. Well, democracies are always vulnerable. There, there have been very few periods of time when global democracy was, was safe, secure, and, and happy. Democracies um, always contain a seed of, of their own destruction because they're open systems in which, you know, just about any political force can can compete. And um, it, sometimes demagogues and anti-democratic politicians get elected. So this is not entirely new territory. Um, but the United States is in a serious democratic crisis. I, I agree with the half uh, the country that says in polls that, that we're not necessarily headed to democratic breakdown, but there's a, a real risk of that. And certainly any American who watched and thought seriously about what happened on January 6, 2021, has to be very concerned about our democracy. But fundamentally, the biggest problem and what's really new in, in the U.S. today is that one of our two major political parties, um, the Republican Party, is no longer fully committed to democratic rules of the game. And it's really hard to sustain a stable democracy when one of two parties in the party system isn't committed to playing by democratic rules of the game. Yeah, and I was reading a, a report, um, you know, in, in alignment with what you were saying, um, that showed that this was a political article 
um, some alumni from the Jimmy Carter administration that I guess they get together every now and then. Well, Dick, Gar Dick Gephardt, who used to be the uh, Democratic House leader, was at the meeting and he noted that, you know, democracies, according to a writer, uh, usually around last for about, you know, for an average lifespan of about 300 years and we're moving into the 300 year mark. And so he's alarmed um, that, you know, the the, the attempts to uh, stop a legitimate election um, as illustrated by January 6th and the subsequent undermining of what happened on that day and, and the mischaracterization of it, the politicization of it, the attacks on the FBI, um, the attacks uh, by the former president uh, and threats by not just the former president, but anyone who associates with him, for instance, Lindsey Graham telling Fox News um, there'll be riots in the streets um, if anything happens and if any charges come at, as, as a result of the uh, FBI raid of his Mar-a-Lago home. Trump taking to the uh, Hugh Hewitt show this week to say that you will have problems. Those were the words he said, you, not we as a country, but you will have problems. I mean, you just look at, you know, illustration after illustration. And then you have the Biden administration trying to really hit home that democracy is under assault. Um, and then they get criticized by many on the far right who said that his speech, for instance, at Independence Hall, Philadelphia, in which he denounced uh, Make America Great Again, MAGA Republicans, he called them, uh, was too divisive. Uh, what do you think about that criticism about his speech? Well, first of all, let me go back to a point you made earlier, because I think it's important. Um, I, I don't buy the argument that first that democracies live for an average of 300 years and we're getting near 300. So we got to watch out. First of all, the, 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 the older democracies that you're generalizing, or not you, but the, the people who make this claim are generalizing based on are very, very, very different political systems, the systems that existed in Athens and Rome are completely different from what we have today. So I think uh, it's not clear that we can take lessons from the, 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 the failure of those regimes. Secondly, though, and more importantly, more to the point, American democracy is not near 300 years old. American democracy, Amer the United States became a modern democracy in 1965. 1965, we're 57 years old. And, um, and, and more to the point, and, and in addition to that, it's precisely that democratization. It's precisely the fact that we finally incorporated all of our citizens into the polity and granted them basic rights. And that, and that the, we began to feel the effects of actually having a diverse, inclusive, inclusive democracy in the 21st century. That multiracial democracy that, that took us 200 plus years to get to, it's that multiracial democracy that's creating the backlash, the reaction, the polarization we're seeing today. The Republican Party has gone off the rails in for a bunch of reasons, but the primary reason, at least we argue, is it is, it is a reaction of the Republican base, basically a white Christian base, to the, 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 the rise of multiracial democracy. So it's, it's, we're much younger than that. And, um, and, and the final steps towards democratization are, I think, what's causing the problem today. Very quickly, in terms of Biden's speech, it's, it's, it's tricky, but nobody likes to be called an authoritarian. Um, and of, of course, when an authoritarian gets called an authoritarian, just like when a thief gets called a thief, or a, uh, a corrupt politician gets called corrupt, they're going to complain about it. But it's very important that we, as a society, that the president of the United States 
uh, call an authoritarian an authoritarian. Um, you know, just just pre just pretending that we continue to have red and blue and donkeys and, and elephants and Democrats and Republicans and that it's sort of politics as usual, I think is very, very dangerous because in effect, we'd be whistling past the graveyard. So one important point um, that I thought was important in your book um, was that in 1787, the world saw the first presidential system and that was the presidential system we have here. And then what's also noteworthy is that Alexander Hamilton expressed some, some concern about a possible scenario in the future. Um, on chapter one, you mentioned that, um, you know, he was worried that a popularly elected president could be too easily captured by those who would play on fear and ignorance to win elections and then rule as tyrants. In the Federalist Papers, he said, history will teach us that of those men who have overturned the liberties of republics, the great number have begun their career by paying an obsequious court to the people, commencing demagogues and ending tyrants. I mean, when you think about that and you think about the constitutional provisions that were in place, the safeguards to prevent a monarchy, um, I'm thinking about, for instance, Section 3 of, of the 14th Amendment uh, specifically, which, of course, that was a reaction to what we, what we had in the Civil War, where it barred anyone who was in part of an insurrection from holding office. So in your view, do you think that Trump could be barred from running for president in 2024 for engaging in an effort to overthrow the U.S. government? in light of the fact that the Senate failed to convict him in the second impeachment? Yeah, I mean, he could be. You could certainly make a legal argument. I'm, I'm not a, a lawyer or a law student or anything remotely like it, but it, it, it certainly you can make a, a case that he could legally be, be barred. I, am, I would be shocked. I, I, think, uh, I don't think politically um, we have the stomach as a society to do that. The, the Biden administration, the Justice Department, the, um, the U.S. establishment is very, is very, very concerned, very divided, and very worried about what to do with Trump. And I personally think that the, that that that's a bridge too far for for the U.S. establishment. I do not think that even the bulk of the Democratic Party will get behind the idea of excluding Donald Trump from the next election, even though. Constitutionally, it's it's legit, and and you know one could argue, and I think I would agree that a, a, you know a politician who uh, tries to overturn democracy, who tries to steal an election, who incites a violent insurrection aimed at overturning the results of an election, and expresses no remorse and has paid no penalty for that, yeah, you can make a case for for excluding them, but I don't think you will. And, and along that same vein, because you. One of the important things that I loved about this book is that you talk about the rise to power of different leaders all throughout the world, whether it be um, Chavez in the Western Hemisphere, or Putin, um, or or uh, you know, or Erdogan. It, it, the one thing that I remember from the book was that you had talked about or illustrated how Caldera elevated Chavez um, to to now becoming the the, the new leader of Venezuela. Um, and so my question is, looking at that parallel with the United States, did the Republican Senate or the senator's failure to convict Trump in the second impeachment, with the exception, of course, of Mitt Romney, did that elevate Trump, transforming him into an even more viable Republican standard bearer? Um, I know you had mentioned that Chavez was transformed into an even more viable candidate. Of course, he at one time was seen as someone who was not serious uh, until 
Caldera, who was a mainstream politician, gave him the cloak of legitimacy. Does this even more legitimate uh, make Trump even more of a viable candidate and party leader going forward? I, I don't know if it makes him more. I mean, he's already been uh, he's been a viable candidate for, for a long time. Right. He won the presidency in 2016. He was president. He's overwhelmingly, uh, even still today, the most popular Republican leader. So he does. He didn't need the U.S. Senate to, to make him a viable candidate. But what he but but I think your your comparison to Caldera is is a good one. It's apt. We worry a lot. Or the establishment is, is spending a lot of time clutching its pearls about the um, the costs of putting a, uh, a a former president and potential candidate who has committed crimes behind bars, holding them accountable for criminal behavior, because. Um, because we fear that it'll set a precedent, that'll be, it'll lead to a tit for tat, and um, and you know th those are those are serious issues and legitimate concerns. But two points, and one of them gets right to the Caldera point. One, there are a lot of democracies in the world, from Peru to Israel to Taiwan to Japan to South Korea, uh, and South uh, South Africa maybe maybe on the road as well. Democracies that have locked up former presidents and prime ministers who committed crimes and lived to tell about it. And we're just fine. Um, and the Venezuela case is an example of the opposite problem. I mean, there, yes, there's a risk to locking up a former president, but there's also a risk to granting impunity to a former president who tried to overthrow democracy. Hugo Chavez led a military coup attempt against Venezuelan democracy and was jailed appropriately. Coup leaders should be jailed. Caldera pardoned him. And um, the costs were high. That, that it, it not only did it legitimize him, but it, it allowed him to run for president, win, and eventually kill Venezuelan democracy. So, you know, people who are criminal threats to democracy um, should have the law applied to them, should be held accountable. And the cost of not holding them accountable is potentially much greater than the cost of holding them accountable. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot, a lot of times folks don't realize the difference in terms of the nominating process that the country has experienced from the times when people used to get into smoke-filled rooms um, and rowdy convention halls to now today where, you know, based on the delegates you have, it's a foregone conclusion that whoever the majority delegate holder is will be the nominee of the party. Uh, but that wasn't always the case. And, and so you use the illustration of Henry Ford, which I found fascinating because Henry Ford, of course, was not a politician. He was not someone who was well-versed in policy or even in global affairs, but he was someone who was respected in the American society at the time. There were Ford for President clubs springing around the summer of 1923. Um, there were you know, calls for him to jump into the 1924 race as a Democrat, I believe. And ultimately, Henry Ford decided against it, but it wasn't because he felt like he couldn't win. It was because the guardrails that you mentioned, the party bosses, would not have allowed him to go. So in other words... They served as a uh, filtration mechanism to prevent someone like Henry Ford from going forward. And in fact, there was a quote by uh, Senator James Cousins, who's, who called the idea of his candidacy ridiculous. He said, how can a man over 60 years old, has no training, no experience, aspire to, so, to such an office? It's most ridiculous. I can't imagine what he would say <laughs> in 2016. But in, in your view, um, you know, has the United States already taken the first step towards authoritarianism because 
of the guardrails like these party bosses no longer being in place. We talked you, you talked about the McGovern Fraser Commission, the reforms that they brought in to the party nomination process. Of course, now it's more of a uh, representation of what the delegates want. So has the United States taken that first step in your view towards authoritarianism because of the abdication of political responsibility by existing leaders in the United States, specifically the GOP? Well, look, we, we took a small step towards authoritarianism when we elected Donald Trump, uh, but we also um, reverted that step by, by uh, electing him out of office. So, um, you know, there, there were some important, very important guardrails that held in 2020 and 2021 and that um, prevent, at least for the time being, a slide into authoritarianism under Trump. I think the um, I, I don't think there's any going back to the smoke filled rooms or even smoke free rooms with party bosses uh, deciding candidates. Um, people like primaries. There would be uh, people already don't trust political parties. And so it's pretty hard to imagine citizens accepting going back to letting party bosses choose candidates. Um, but. I don't think that I don't think the the so we have a more much more democratic candidate selection process than we had before. People really do have a voice in uh, in in choosing our candidates. Again, if the elite, if the if if Mitch McConnell and his buddies had chosen the Republican candidate in 2016, it would not have been Donald Trump. None of the Republican elite supported Donald Trump, and it it was the people, the Republican people, the Republican base that brought us Donald Trump. So what what the the a much more open candidate selection system does is um, not necessarily push us towards authoritarianism, but it opens the window for demagogues. A, a window that was basically shut before 1972. It really was uh, you know Hamilton worried about demagogues. You read that great quote. Um, we went 200 years, 200 plus years Without a demagogue, I mean, may, Andrew Jackson arguably, you know, may have may fit the, the category, but you know, we had good presidents, bad presidents, liberal, conservative. We had a whole range, some corrupt, but we went two hundred years without electing a demagogue. Um, in part, that was because we had a much we had a, we had this filtration system that you mentioned. Now it's more open, it's more democratic. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to elect authoritarians, but it leaves us more vulnerable. It makes it possible for authoritarians to get in the window when that window used to be shut. And, and you know, I'm thinking the invisible primary based on 2016 is forever gone, in my view. Um, I agree with you. But based on the fact that we have the Electoral College, I know there's a lot of people on the left saying we should abolish the Electoral College. Of course, you know, with the exception of 2004, the Democratic Party seems to have win, won the majority vote almost in every presidential election. Doesn't seem to, it has. It has, you're right. It has, and and but when you look at the fact that the Supreme Court makeup is mostly Republican appointees, um, in light of the fact, you know, abortion of course is a hot issue now, then you're gonna, you're starting to see um, more Supreme Court rulings that are in alignment with uh, conservative uh, interpretation of the constitution. In your view, has the Electoral College failed to serve as a built-in screening device? That it was supposed to be. Um, again. Yeah, but it, it's failed. It's failed since about the year eighteen hundred. I mean, it was designed. It, it never really functioned the way it was designed. The, the 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 first of all, 
the, the, the electoral college was, was a third best choice. The, as you mentioned earlier, when, when, when we wrote the constitution, when our founders wrote the constitution, there were no presidents, elected presidents in the world. There was no model to borrow from. We were in totally uncharted territory. These guys were improvising and they thought about a direct popular vote. It got voted down. The South didn't like it. They were worried that the, the North would outvote the South and maybe threaten slavery. So that was going nowhere. There, uh, Madison pushed the, the Virginia plan, which is basically a parliamentary style democracy where the, the, the pre, a weaker president would emerge out of the Congress, basically like they do in Britain and Canada. That got voted down. They voted down all the options and basically were running out of time. It was hot. It was the end of the summer. They wanted to go home and they chose the Electoral College as a sort of least bad. It was, it was the only solution that could get a majority, that get the votes to pass. So nobody designed this as a perfect system. It was hoped, it was hoped that it would be a filter, like a serve as a filter, but it very, the founders didn't anticipate the emergence of political parties. Political parties emerged and, and, and the electoral college basically became, was controlled by party representatives. And so it never, ever, ever um, worked as this sort of filtration device. What it does is um, it was basically a vestigial, like kind of a useless institution for most of our history. But now because of um, uh, the, the, the fact that we've, we were now, a lot, we have a, a cleavage between rural and, and, and urban America. For the first time, the parties are divided along urban rural lines and the uh, electoral college is biased towards sparsely populated states. Now we have a problem where it's creating a bias where um, the, the, it's becoming a, a, a more or less regular feature of the system that the candidate who gets, the, gets fewer votes wins the presidency. And that is really, really problematic. Uh, we, we have a set of counter-majoritarian institutions in the United States that are threatening to push us into minority rule. Um, when, you know, when the losers of elections govern us, or, or when the, the parties with fewer votes or fewer seats systematically block legislation backed by uh, legislative majorities, or an unelected court systematically strikes down legislation backed by majorities, that's that's not democracy. That's minority rule. No, that's, that's I, I couldn't agree more. And, and then you have people saying you should pack the court. Um, so how do you feel about calls to pack the Supreme Court. Of course, people have characterized on the right that kind of proposal as too radical, too much of a left-wing pie-in-the-sky idea. Uh, but do you think that that would be an effective way to neutralize the current conservative majority? Or would it actually do more to damage what was supposed to be an apolitical institution? Well, I mean, that a lot, a lot that in, I, I don't support packing the courts, but in defense of the court packers, the damage, unfortunately, has already been done. The, the court is already very clearly been politicized. The, the legitimacy of the court in the eyes of public opinion has plummeted. Uh, unfortunately, the damage has been done. But um, packing the court is, a game, is, is constitutional hardball. It's the use of the letter of the law to subvert its, its spirit. It's using our institutions as a weapon against your opponent. And, and, it will, and it probably will lead to pretty damaging tit for tat. What I would advocate for rather than court packing is, uh, is a reform to establish either a retirement age on the court or term limits, regular term limits, so that uh, each president on a regular basis 
had whatever it is, two two nominations. So you never again have the kind of horrendous theft of a Supreme Court seat that we saw uh, with Merrick Garland's uh, appointment in 2016. Uh, and and um, I mean, we, we, the United States is the only established democracy in the world with truly lifetime appointments to the Supreme Court. Every other democracy either has term limits or a retirement age. And that's the kind of reform that I would advocate. You know, this book made me think about a lot of Republican friends I have who on the 6th, I remember they were saying, well, this is not what I voted for. You know, this is what we saw in, you know, all the chaos that unfolded was not what I voted for. And this book made me think, you know, why didn't you think that's what you were voting for? Uh, when you think about the fact that, you know, you brought up four key in, uh, indicators of authoritarian behavior. Do you mind explaining to the audience why Trump il illustrated those kinds of um, indicators before January 6th? Not just before January 6th, before Election Day in 2016, before we ever voted the first time. Forget 2020. When he was just a kid, when he was just coming down that golden escalator, he had already shown that he was likely to be uh, an authoritarian. We drew on the great Spanish political scientist, Juan Linz, who was one of the great 20th century political scientists who studied demo democratic breakdown across the world for a good part of his career. And we uh, we developed this, this four-point limits test he referred to based a lot on his, his writing and his experience. And uh, so they're, you know, looking at, the way other politicians have behaved across history in other in other countries, we argue that there are sort of four indicators, four boxes that if you check them, you ought to worry, probably not vote for this candidate. One is, do they condone or encourage violence? Democrat, small D Democratic politicians should never, ever, under any circumstance, condone violence. Second, do they... Um, uh, uh, accept the legitimacy of their rivals? Do they treat their rivals as legitimate opponents or as enemies, treat them as criminals, as subversives, as communists, as terrorists? Um, that's the second one. Third, do they respect democratic rules of the game? Do Are they willing, for example, to accept the results of elections? That's pretty critical in a democracy. And fourth, do they threaten to violate the civil liberties of their critics, their opponents. Trump did all of those th four things before election day in 2016. He condoned violence at his rallies. He called Hillary Clinton a criminal and threatened to lock her up. That is not accepting the legitimacy of your rival. He threatened uh, libel laws and, and libel action against uh, media he, that, that criticized him. Um, and he said before the 2016 election that he might not accept the results of the election unless he won. So he was four for four. He checked off all four boxes before your Republican friends ever voted for him the first time. Professor, this is the last question, because the thing that I really appreciated about this book is that it really showed that Trump wasn't the first of his kind in, 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 uh, to enter the political mainstream. Um, you had people like uh, Eugene McCarthy. You had people like um, uh, Wallace, George Wallace. You, you had candidates before running, but of course they didn't have the same chance that Trump had, uh, of course, for, because of the gatekeeping um, political bosses that we talked about earlier. But um, it, you're, you know, the thing that 
I wanted to know is whether you think Trumpism in history would be kind of remembered the same way we view McCarthyism today. Um, you know, you see that eventually people come to see the threat that this man posed to democracy, or will this continue to be a matter of just where you fall on the political spectrum? That's the million dollar question, Michael. I, I, I don't, we're still in the middle of this, so it's hard to say. I mean, one might have thought, and, I, and a lot of us thought on January 7th of 2021, that that was sort of the, the tipping point when uh, all of us would come together and realize that this had gone too far, that, that Trump had led us in a, in a very, very dangerous direction, and that nearly all the Republican Party McCarthy, McConnell, et cetera, would, would cut ties, right? This guy was had just had just instigated a, 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 a violent insurrection on the Capitol. Um, but it wasn't our McCarthy moment. Uh, is there another one ahead of us? I don't know. But I don't think, um, and, and of course, history gets written by the winners. So it's, um, there, there, it may well be the case that eventually we build a broad coalition that spans from you know AOC to Liz Cheney and isolate and politically defeat Trumpism and that eventually this goes down in in history as something like McCarthyism. Um, but it's an open question and it depends. That will only happen if Trumpism is isolated and defeated politically. And it's an open question whether that will happen. We don't know. Yeah. And then people are also looking to see if he does get back in office, would he pack uh, the DOJ? Would he pack the FBI with loyalists? That was another indicator. Better believe he will try. <laughs> He's then, he said as much. And then the impact that will have uh, on democracy and elections going forward. But Professor Levinsky, thank you so much for dedicating some time to come on the political mic. I'm forever grateful to you. Um, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And so, you know, for those who may be skeptical about gerrymandering and voting and everything like that, for young people who may be thinking, it doesn't matter what I do, the election determination's already made without my participation. What, what advice do you have for them? You still, you're still talking to me? Yes. Oh, I, um, sorry, I thought you'd sent me away. Um, <laughs> look, uh, First of all, our, our elections are very close, and um, there's nothing more more central to to democracy than access to about voting rights and and voting. And so um, there there is nothing more important to do than than work so that everyone has access to the vote and work that so that that that, that people vote. If you can't get behind that basic civic responsibility, then you probably have no business living in a democracy. Um, and our elections are so close that, um, I mean, there was a day, you know, decades ago when our elections were not so close. And so, you know, it, you, you could see why people might be apathetic or not get why it's important. But our elections, every election uh, nowadays is is razor edge close. And so there really is is no excuse Unless you don't see a difference between uh, MAGA and and the, the the forces lined up against MAGA, unless you don't see a difference between those two, which I find unimaginable, um, 
I, I cannot, it, it's hard to think of an excuse to not be involved. Thank you so much, Professor Levinsky, for everything. Sure. And, and I just want to go put a plug in for this book, this incredible book, Thanks. Very Enlightening, How Democracies Die, New York Times bestseller. You're, you're sending I, my dollar through college. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. But thank you so Take much. Care. All right. Take care thank of yourself. You too. Well, folks, uh, that concludes episode 73 of The Political Mic. Um, I'm, I hope you enjoyed uh, the insight that Professor Levinsky brought. I sure did as <laughs> myself. Um, thank you for tuning in. As always, I want to encourage uh, my audience to refrain from sketchy for sources of information and, and challenge the sources of, of news that you do uh, tune into and plug into. With that being said, I hope you have a wonderful weekend, and I hope you tune in next week to the political mic. I will see you then.